My name is Alex Bailey. And I am Alexa Ruel. And you're listening to Brainstorm, exploring minds and behaviors. Hello and welcome to another exciting new episode of Brainstorm, exploring minds and behaviors. My name is Alex Bailey. And with my friend Alexa, we are going to explore beyond the doors of perception, and things are going to get a little bit groovy. That's right. Today, we're going to be looking at hallucinogens. Now, the first thing that probably comes to mind when you think about hallucinogens, or psychedelic drugs as they're also called, are things like LSD, magic mushrooms, or even peyote. All three chemicals are known to be very potent and powerful at changing the way that one perceives the world around them. In the 1960s and 70s, these drugs were popularized by things like the Summer of Love, of individuals taking these drugs along with free sex and rock and roll to be able to rebel against the culture at large. But since then, especially in the 1970s on, were considered to be taboo by many countries and cultures around the world because they were thought to be drugs of abuse. But interestingly enough, researchers themselves have been interested in the effects of the psychedelic drugs because they have some very important and very interesting clinical implications for treating a variety of drug-resistant psychological and psychiatric illnesses. To be able to explore this topic of research in depth, we're joined today by three amazing guest panelists. The first, Tommy Markopoulos, a neuroscience graduate student at the Integrated Program in Neuroscience at McGill University. My name is Tommy Markopoulos. I'm a second year master's student in the Integrated Program in Neuroscience at McGill. And I study autism spectrum disorder preclinically, so using mice. Uh, and I'm located in the lab of Dr. Gabriela Gobi in the Neurobiological Psychiatry Unit. Thank you, Tommy. Our next guest is Dr. Milan Valier, a postdoctoral fellow in the psychology department at McGill University. My name is Milan Valier. Uh, I broadly am interested in pathological feeding behavior and drug use. And uh, I did my PhD at Concordia studying alcohol use disorder in preclinical animal models. And I'm now a postdoctoral fellow at McGill University uh, studying the neural circuits that underlie fundamental psychological processes like reward, aversion, and motivation. Welcome, Milan. And lastly, we introduce you to Dr. Argel Aguilar Valles. My name is Argel Aguilar Valles. I am an assistant professor at the Department of Neuroscience in uh, Carleton University. I study the mechanism of action of novel antidepressant treatments and uh, among other things. And uh, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. I have to say that this is a topic I don't know much about, so I'm really excited to learn a lot today, and I hope that um, we can, you know, lead this into a very interesting discussion. I think so too, Alexa. Okay, gentlemen, without further ado, let's get started. Arhel, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you are considering the concept of psychedelics in your own research compared to what you may have experienced, for example, when someone first thinks about uh, psychedelics from more of a popular culture perspective? So for, uh, for most of my career, I was um, 
uh, yeah, not very uh, interested. It was like a secondary thing. Oh, yeah, of course, there are things that, that change your mind and make you hallucinate. Uh, but that that was the end of it. And, and because of this idea that all these drugs being dangerous, I mean, when you hear the word acid, it doesn't necessarily invoke the safest thing to do, right? We use acid to clean also walls and that doesn't sound like something you wanna <laughs> consume for your mental health so, uh, or for anything. So uh, it sounded like, oh, this, there is obviously, uh, you know, people that try anything so it was always that idea and again it's it was it was fed with all the uh, uh preconceptions and and stigma uh, uh developed uh, you know, that you find in popular culture so actually it was until uh towards the end of my of my postdoctoral training at mcgill university i was collaborating with dr gobi who is uh, uh uh, Tommy's supervisor, and they have they, they were pioneers in this field. They were uh, some of the first groups, uh, particularly in Canada, that started seriously investigating uh, these drugs from you know from a pharmacological point of view, uh, from looking at their targets and their potential uh, uh, uses for mental disorder. So that's when I was introduced to to this field, and that's where my uh, my perspective on them uh, changed dramatically. And uh, now I, I, my idea of them has, has completely uh, changed and, and my understanding has grown a little bit more. But uh, yeah, that's sort of like how, I, how it, it developed for me. Brilliant. Now, Tommy, as a current student of Dr. Gobi, what do you think about all this? Yeah, so I had uh, a pretty similar experience. So I first joined this lab when I was an undergraduate student. And when I first, you know, started doing research with with LSD, uh, you know, there's kind of this, um, this connotation, that, uh, you know, this, um, this association with LSD that people have and that I had before I started doing research with it. And, you know, for example, when I would uh, I don't know, tell my parents or my friends, and I'm starting to do research with LSD, you can imagine, you know, the kind of looks I got. Because, um, you know, at first, at surface level, it's kind of strange, you know, we're using these super potent, uh, really, you know, wild drugs that, you know, make produce these hallucinations and have all these crazy things. Um, yeah, so it definitely surprised me, you know, for, uh, dipping my toes in the water a little bit and starting to do research. Uh, and the more I started doing it and, you know, looking in the literature, the, the more I realized, like, wow, how much untapped potential there are with these things. Because, you know, as much of as we've learned so far, there's still, you know, so much to uncover. Uh, but it's just, I can understand why there's so much, you know, attention and research being fo uh, focused on these drugs now. Uh, and it seems, you know, really like a shame that uh, there was this huge hiatus, uh, you know, at, in the late 90s for all research associated with these drugs. Um, yeah, so a lot of mixed feelings, but now I'm very happy to be, to have gotten my foot in the door and be introduced to such a cool field. When it comes to sort of studying drugs, generally speaking, whether they're psychedelics or trying to consider different sort of like drug mechanisms of how a particular molecule impacts upon the brain. Um, oftentimes, researchers like to use different types of animal models before we move up to the human level. Milan, this is your background beyond belief. And I'm curious, what are your feelings about like trying to use different types of animal models to study drug interactions, but in particular, how drugs can impact the cognitive abilities of the brain? Yeah, that's a great question. And it becomes uh, an even more interesting question when you think about giving 
animals, psychedelic drugs. Um, obviously, I'm a, I'm a big believer in reduced preparations, being able to tell us something about humans, reduced preparations being, say, rodents. Um, and I think rodents generally are capable of, of lots of, of very interesting behaviors that parallel things that people do. Um, probably uh, Arhel or Tommy could, could speak to this a little bit better, but one of the popular models uh, of, I think, hallucination is a head twitch response that rodents um, exhibit when they're given hallucinogenic drugs. And, and uh, that's obviously a quite reduced behavior uh, compared to what a human might, might experience. There was a recent paper, I think it was arguably the first paper to suggest that mice could experience hallucinations. It was by Katerina Schmack and it was published in Science about a year ago. And uh, Katerina and her colleagues focused on a um, perceptual hallucination, which people experience all the time, right? Like many people are familiar with having their phone vibrate in their, the feeling as though their phone vibrates in their pocket and it hasn't vibrated at all. Um, and, and I think that's a reduced hallucination. It's quite different than hearing or seeing, uh, you know, vivid imagery or vivid sounds, but it's still a hallucination. It's just kind of on this continuum of very complex to very simple hallucinations. And interestingly, in, in, with such a reduced hallucination, this kind of auditory percept, um, you could model that in mice. And what Katerina and her colleagues did was they um, trained mice that when they heard a particular sound against a background of static, like shh, uh, the mice were required to make a response and get a, 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 some kind of food reward. And what they noticed was that um, mice sometimes would respond as though they had heard this cue in the background of static, but it wasn't actually there. And they were able to do all sorts of interesting measurements of uh, neural activity and neurotransmitter levels in the brain. And they, they determined that uh, dopamine played a key role in this kind of auditory percept. So when most people think about um, hallucinations and maybe psychedelic drug use, they could envision these very vivid uh, auditory and, and, and visual experiences. But that's not to say that uh, we don't experience a continuum of hallucinations, maybe reduced preparations like the phone vibration is an example. Ooh, okay, that is an amazing point. And I've got something actually to, to further on to that. So there's this idea that's been kind of going around in the circles of neuroscience that kind of how we perceive the world around us is not this necessarily direct one-to-one -one representation of, you know, sensory signals coming in that we then interpret and we state, all right, I'm able to, to perceive something such that, for example, if you look ahead towards um, a cup of coffee that's presented right in front of you, you can perceive the shape and its form and how you'd be able to put your hand in the handle to be able to hold it and the temperature of the liquid that's inside. But to an extent, we also have this pre-expected notion of what the cup of coffee is supposed to look like, what it's supposed to feel like, and what it's supposed to do. And I'm wondering on the topic of how drugs can particularly 
impact our perceptions of the world around us, whether or not it's possible that one of the reasons why different chemicals can be so impactful is because our brains are kind of constantly filling in gaps. And in a way, it's almost like we're hallucinating just through our natural states of being human and being mammals in the first place. Well, more to the to the idea that, you know, how we perceive the world uh, has to do with some sort of, you know, sensory gating in our heads. I think that is, you know, intimately tied to psychedelics and how, uh, you know, these hallucinations are formed because, well, you know, this is not exclusive to psychedelics, but how we perceive the world is that we have a, a part of the brain called the thalamus and virtually all our sensory information gets filtered by this brain structure. Uh, and so, you know, people with, uh, you know, certain uh, mental, uh, mental disorders or psychiatric uh, conditions, um, some of them can be explained in part due to this different gating of sensory information. And so one idea is that psychedelics, the reason they produce uh, these hallucinations is because uh, you have, you have a, the psychedelics manipulate what information is being gated. Um, so for instance, if uh, you, know, you have less gating, you have more sensory information, you know, getting to uh, different parts of the brain that uh, you know, affect how you perceive the world, this is why you might you know, see certain things and uh, you know, experience the world, which isn't changing in a vastly different way when you're on psychedelics. And I guess an extension of this is a concept called synesthesia which is where people uh, experience, you know, two different uh, sensory perceptions uh, only after experiencing one. So an example for that is uh, you see a letter and then when you see this letter, you also, I don't know, uh, exhibit a smell. So, or you perceive a smell rather. And so this concept, uh, although I don't think it's necessarily super well-defined, uh, one hypothesis is that this is due to, uh, you know, different types of connectivity in the brain. So when you think about the brain, things can be, uh, you know, to put it simply, either connected structurally. So meaning that they're physically connected through, you know, we can call them wires in the brain. Another thing is uh, we can call it functionally connected, meaning that they may not necessarily have such strong wires connecting the two, but they, for instance, are activated at the same time. And so one idea is that psychedelics may actually, uh, you know, affect this, uh, structural or functional connectivity, uh, which can produce synesthesia. And there's been studies showing that um, psychedelics, uh, I think it was LSD that they used, uh, produced a specific type of synesthesia, uh, which produced uh, um, a color associated with a letter. Uh, so for instance, you see the letter P uh, and you would automatically think of, I don't know, navy blue. Is any of this related to kind of an expectation, right? So I'm coming from like a cognitive background where is there any effect of the kind of the effect of the drug that would be prompted or led on by someone's expectation of what will happen? So if I think that by taking X, Y, Z drug, I will see colors or have this effect, am I more likely to experience that? Does the kind of idea or concept that this might happen to me, does that enhance the effect? And is that related to what you're talking about here um, at all? Or is it completely different? And anyone can answer this one. I can speak to that a little bit. 
I, th I think expectation is, is super interesting for a lot of different reasons. And um, one, one example, a notable example, is that people who are trying to stop smoking cigarettes can use um, like lozenges or inhalers that contain nicotine, right? And this is called a nicotine replacement therapy. And the idea is that this, by replacing the nicotine without a cigarette, you could ease the cravings. But what has actually been shown is that what determines the effect of these manipulations at reducing craving much more strongly than the actual nicotine is whether or not people think there's nicotine in the lozenge or the inhaler. So if you tell someone um, there's nicotine in this lozenge when there's not, they'll say, oh, that really alleviated my craving. And if you tell them there's no nicotine in this lozenge, um, when there is, they'll say it's not really doing it for me. So uh, an expectation can definitely uh, alter your experience. And there's lots of other examples like that nicotine one with lots of other different types of drugs. So far, we've talked a little bit about, um, you know, LSD, we've touched on nicotine. Um, so different kinds of drugs are, I mean, so again, I'm not an expert here, but I know there's some drugs that are addictive and others that are not right. And so maybe someone can speak a little bit about um, how the mechanism that these different drugs act, what makes an addictive drug addictive and what makes a non-addictive drug non-addictive? And is there really a difference there? And how do these differ? It's a great point, right? That um, the risk of somebody developing a substance use disorder depends a lot on what the, the substance is. For example, the risk of developing cannabis use disorder is very low, meaning many people try uh, marijuana, but very few proportionally develop cannabis use disorder. Whereas the risk of developing like an opiate use disorder is quite a lot higher. Many people that try heroin end up developing uh, opiate use disorder. The, the, the like conventional or historical thinking about developing substance use disorders was thought to relate to dopamine activity. And this came from studies in the late eighties and early nineties, where it was shown in rodents and then later also in people that seemingly all drugs of abuse elevate dopamine levels in an area of the brain called the ventral striatum. And so it was assumed that this might have something to do with the problematic relationship that people can develop with, with different substances. Um, certainly all psychostimulants produce a very strong dopamine response. So amphetamine, cocaine, um, and other drugs. What's interesting, I think about psychedelics is that they have diverse uh, pharmacological actions in the brain and act through serotonin receptors and and other neurotransmitter systems. And I think that, and, and the, the um, risk of developing a you know, use disorder with, with psychedelics is, is phenomenally low. So that might have something to do with that. So separate neurotransmitter systems being involved. But I think maybe Arhel or Tommy might know a bit more about why people don't develop use disorders with psychedelics. I I, as, as you mentioned, uh, you know, even with the, the most addictive substances, you have uh, 
on one side the, the effect of the drug, but on the other side, uh, your uh, genetic and perhaps the genetic makeup that may change your susceptibility to develop a use disorder. So not everybody that consumes addictive drugs will be uh, developing uh, you know, uh, a, a substance use disorder. But as, as Milan mentioned, the evidence that um, that it's been gathered through like before the massive ban on, on the studying these substances and after that is that uh, none of the, the uh, uh, these drugs uh, classified as serotonergic hallucinogenics are uh, are um, um, are causing the pen, uh, substance use uh, uh, disorder in any way, in any tangible way. Uh, some of the effects that people experience may be different, and as as you were mentioning, expectations and uh, and uh, the, the uh, intensity of the experience is going to be very different, and that's affected by a multitude of, of psychological and physiological factors. But uh, what it's clear is that uh, there are no, as far as I know, and I hope I'm correct, there are no recorded cases of people uh, with uh, a substance use disorder to you know, again, these serotoninergic uh, hallucinogenics. I'm talking about the LSD, uh, psilocybin, and it's, it's metabolites and DMT and, and things like that. So uh, it's not entirely clear why, but what, what uh, Milan mentioned about uh, hitting more uh, strongly this, the, uh, the serotonin neurotransmission might be one of the reasons. Uh, their pharmacology is indeed complex. One of the main receptor mediators in the brain is this uh, serotonin receptor 5-HT2A, which is not necessarily linked to the reward system directly, but you know you have to remember the brain is an interconnected machine. So uh, changes in one place might lead to others. But the fact that they're targeting all of these different receptors in different areas may have to do with that and not primarily uh, targeting the reward system, which is, you know, what, what uh, is hijacked by uh, all these types of uh, um, more uh, addictive drugs. One thing I'd like to add, which I think is uh, quite interesting, is that, you know, there's a lot of early studies where they, they actually tested some of these uh, psychedelic compounds uh, for the treatment of substance use disorder. Um, so, you know, back in the day, when I say that, I mean, you know, uh, in the 1960s, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous endorsed the use of LSD as a treatment for uh, alcohol use disorder. Uh, and, you know, there's been studies uh, also with uh, testing the use of, of uh, LSD, particularly for the treatment of uh, addiction to nicotine, so cigarettes. Um, and although, you know, the, the methodology of you know these early studies is perhaps isn't up to par with uh, those of today. Um, you know, it's definitely something that a lot of people truly believed in, and you know, it's not just uh, these isolated. Like there were quite a few studies that looked at this. So, and, and that's not to say that you know um, the two are mutually exclusive, meaning that uh, the same drug can cause substance use disorder. Uh, and you know that's one camp, and the other camp is that it treats it. It doesn't mean that the two are mutually exclusive. Um, it's just interesting, and you know, on this topic that um, you know, conversely, that these drugs are actually used to treat some of these things we're talking about. To consider that there might exist ways that one could actually be able to try to improve their symptoms for 
different types of psychological and psychiatric illnesses that may otherwise just simply not be treated by more sort of like conventional means or take a very long time to try to regulate is is wonderful. It's sort of like figuring out that there exist ways to be able to, um, especially when it comes to to illnesses like depression, find ways that can literally help someone not only to kind of alleviate symptoms that might seem like a little bit how to how to phrase this i suppose that are just so meaningful for someone quite literally to like enjoy the sunshine and to be able to not feel as though every single waking moment is just uh, a state of meh is is groundbreaking the other thing that i think is incredible too and speaking with all of you today when it comes to drugs and one would typically assume that okay drugs are these substances that we're taking into ourselves they're dangerous, we have to know more. It seems almost as though there's a hell of a lot of enthusiasm and optimism that exists with the exploration of um, both anything having to do with things like considering the different effects of ketamine or psilocybin, or even parts of LSD. And based on our knowledge of how more of the reward pathway works for dopamine, figuring out how those interactions can kind of underlie what the brain is doing. All this to say, a giant question for you all uh, right now, what is the potential for being able to try to use uh, different drugs for looking at clinical populations? And is there actually a lot of hope for this? Well, uh, this is, you know, relating to uh, some of the things that Argel and Milan spoke about. Um, but one thing that perhaps encourages this optimism regarding these drugs is that um, some studies show that you know, the positive effects that they create can last quite a long time. So you spoke about SSRIs uh, earlier and, you know, they take a long time to work. You build a tolerance. There's a lot of, you know, negative things associated with them. Uh, not to say that there's not negative things associated with psychedelics, but one thing that perhaps is, uh, we can be optimistic about is how long the effects last. So there's one study that showed that, um, so they, they were treating uh, patients with terminal illness uh, and they gave them two treatments of psilocybin in addition to, uh, you know, a therapy session. And what they found is that three months post the treatments, the patients still exhibited uh, reduced anxiety. And six months post the treatment, they exhibited reduced depression. So one, that's one thing really notable is how long the effects last. Um, and another thing is uh, that perhaps you ask is, you know, how do we study these and why are we optimistic is, uh, well, one thing that's, you know, positive about using preclinical models such as mice is that, you know, although we do lose a certain translational uh, value, not using, you know, a higher level species like a, like a human, uh, we, we do have the liberty of performing more, uh, you know, invasive experiments and tests. And this lets us uh, look at things like, okay, if we give drugs specific, you know, inject the drug, the drug in specific brain regions, or perhaps, uh, you know, use these very invasive techniques to really isolate, uh, you know, what the mechanism is behind it's, uh, you know, these drugs, um, we're able to learn so much more. And so, um, for instance, one thing that, uh, that we found in, in our lab is that um, a repeated regimen of LSD can produce uh, increased social behavior. And so what this is relevant for clinically is, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, disorders uh, where one of the, the, the phenotypes is, you know, the people suffering from these disorders have less social behavior. 
And so one classic example is uh, social anxiety disorder or autism spectrum disorder. And, you know, these are conditions where traditionally there's not all these, um, there's not, you know, a lot of good treatments available that target, you know, the core, the core problem, which is, you know, reduce social uh, behavior. And so identifying these compounds that can produce, you know, such potent uh, pro-social effects uh, can be especially optimistic for, you know, researchers of, of this, of these fields. I think it's crazy to think again, like Alex just pointed out, to think that a single treatment can have such a long-lasting effect. And I think this is where these feelings of hope and um, interest in these types of treatments really come from. Um, coming from kind of a general understanding of how these drugs work, um, again, this might be completely wrong. I know that you can kind of dose differently, and the effects of the different dosages will be different as well. When we're talking about um, hallucinogenics being used as treatments for depression, for instance, or increasing sociability, how much, like how big is the dose we're talking about? If it's lasting a long time, is it something that's still a small dose or do you really have to take a significant amount of the drug to have a lasting effect or even have an immediate effect? So if I may, uh, the numbers are a bit relative, right? But uh, uh, it's, uh, it's still a huge debate in the field, whether, for example, it is the, uh, for the therapeutic effects of, for example, psilocybin of LSD, whether the, uh, uh, the hallucinogenic experience itself is required. It's, it's there. But uh, in the end, the answer probably will be somewhere in the middle because uh, certainly whatever we experience is affected by our, our beliefs and our, our, our you know, our, our uh, ex uh, the way we experience the world is affected by what we believe in. So tapping on those beliefs will be just as important as understanding which receptors are being targeted for treating uh, a, a psychiatric disorder. Uh, I think this idea that just taking a pill will be enough to, to cure us of any psycho, um, you know, psychiatric or and psychological ailment, I think it's very naive and I think it's been misleading for a number of years, but that's my personal opinion. And I think in the end, I come in, in people, and we're not, not talking about animal models, which I use, in people, a combination of both, it's what is required to, to uh, successfully treat something. I think that that is just the most incredible thing to contemplate. Um, like there, there are just sort of based off of uh, like very traditional means of, of considering different types of medication, like peyote, which is from a cactus in sort of the Southwest of, of um, kind of the United States and Northern Mexico to ayahuasca, which has become very much a traditional use of uh, looking at types of forms of hallucinogens. Um, but one thing I was curious to ask, and that I think something that uh, Milan may also be quite well aware of too, do different drugs act similarly? Or are there almost always different mechanisms behind all these different effects? Um, I guess what I'm kind of really curious to ask too, by taking a drug, is there almost like a certain pathway or a certain part of the brain um, that is almost like extremely crucial to being able to understand how it affects how human beings and different types of mammals react? Or does it almost affect all parts of the brain in very wacky ways? I, I would just say that I think that also is a really interesting thing to contemplate. And I think generally 
drugs can have very complex what people sometimes call like network effects. They, they kind of change the overall functioning of the brain. So definitely, you know, even, even drugs that are thought to have like very specific mechanisms of action um, can affect neurotransmitter systems all over the brain. And I, I mentioned earlier that lots of people focused on dopamine research when they were studying substance use disorders because dopamine levels were elevated in an area of the brain, the ventral striatum, when animals or people used uh, drugs of abuse. But so too were glutamate levels, for example. And um, I think this might be a bit controversial, but I think there's been so much research attempting to develop pharmacotherapies that target the dopamine system to treat substance use, substance use disorders. And many of them have had you know, mixed or limited efficacy. And I think that the reason for that mixed or limited efficacy is uh, because there's likely multiple uh, interacting neurotransmitters involved in most psychopathologies. And, and Tommy rightly pointed out that there was a bunch of studies in the 60s um, showing that LSD could have long-term benefits for alcohol use disorder. And I don't know how you know, one dose of LSD might have been uh, manipulating the dopamine system alone, for example, to produce that long-lasting change. Wow. Okay, that is insanely cool. Next, we have a little bit of a wacky question for you three. Some of our staff writers were curious to ask, are out-of-body experiences possible? And what is this term of ego dissolution? Well, I, I, I'll go quickly first because I don't have much to add to it because, that, again, I study my, so I, <laughs> I don't know if they have that or not. But I would say, uh, yeah, ego dissolution, it's a psychological uh, uh, category that is better when you take these drugs. I'm not a psychologist, so I'm, I'm basically talking out of my uh, backside. But uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's something that you can uh, measure and, and it's one of the effects of these uh, uh, hallucinogenic uh, psychedelics. Uh, sorry, serotoninergic psychedelics. And, and I would just say that I think, I don't know if an out-of-body experience is real, but it's real in the sense that you can uh, certainly, uh, you know, as we've been talking about uh, sensory uh, um, function and how can you create a sensory experience even if there is nothing out there. I think those people that experience that uh, part of the answer is that that image, that context is being created in their heads. So it's real as long as, you know, it's there. <laughs> it's, it's part of the, uh, the, what the brain can create. Whether uh, there is, uh, you know, uh, something else happening, I probably, uh, I have no idea. <laughs> Very nice. Thank you. Well, what, what I would say is that I think it's a very, well, obviously it's a, it's a subjective question. And I think the way you kind of formulate an answer is by, you know, speaking with people who have had such experiences and trying to find these common themes. So the way I understand this is that, well, what is the ego? Again, I'm not a psychologist, but to my, to my knowledge, the ego is, you know, uh, your, 
you carry your, you know, your premonitions and your biases and your, your subjective uh, experiences into the world. And, you know, when you perceive something, you, it doesn't, you know, you don't perceive it in an unbiased manner. And so what is ego dissolution? Perhaps it's, you know, being an objective, unbiased observer of the universe. Uh, it sounds kind of, you know, fantastical, but, you know, when we're talking about psychedelics, that's, you know, it's, it's not completely out, out of the ballpark to, to use these kind of words. Uh, so that, that's the way I would describe it. Very cool. And thank you both. A little bit of a fun question for you. What got you into being interested in studying drugs? And where do you think that the field is heading? It was chance. You know, I just so happened to apply to, to the one lab that was doing, you know, psychedelic research. Uh, and I'm so grateful that, you know, I was lucky enough to have had these experiences. So one thing that w one direction which I feel the field is going towards is something that uh, Argel spoke about. And it's that, um, so we see that these drugs can, you know, sometimes produce these really magnificent effects and have such positive outcomes. Uh, but one negative thing, for example, in an older population would be actually having to go through the hallucinogenic experience. So if, you know, we are able to, to, you know, develop a compound that produces the same efficacy in treating, you know, mental illness or, uh, you know, certain ailments without having to experience the, you know, hallucinations and, and all that, um, I think that opens the avenue to, you know, such a bigger demographic uh, that would be able to benefit from these because, you know, for example, my my old grandmother, I don't think she would want to trip out, uh, you know, with LSD in order to treat whatever, you know, condition she was dealing with. Um, so that's where I personally think the, the field is going towards. I'll tell two answers if, if, if you'll entertain me. One is like more romantic and one is real. Um, but the, the romantic answer is, and I didn't think about it until this podcast, was that... Um, when I was like a second year uh, undergraduate student at Wilfrid Laurier University in Ontario, I, I was in a plant biology class. And um, I remember the professor talking to us about how uh, there seems to be this natural proclivity among humans, but also other animals to kind of seek out so-called altered states of consciousness, right? So many people recreationally use drugs. Um, many people have pets that also recreationally use drugs like cats and use catnip, right? Um, and, and Arhel also spoke about, uh, you know, original people all over the world using in shamanistic practices like drugs. Um, uh, for example, like I Ibogaine, which is a modified version of seems to be particularly therapeutic for substance use disorders, preclinical research was originally, I think, used by uh, uh, perhaps pygmy people in Africa, but I'm not sure. But anyways, it, it really struck me that there was this natural pro proclivity among human and people to seek out substances that would kind of change the way that their brain works. And I wonder where that comes from and why that is. And it seems to happen in animals and also people. So that, that idea really did stick with me, but it's not, it, it would be misleading to say that's why I started studying drugs. Um, I really was just interested in, in motivation and, and what motivates people and, and animals. And um, that led me to a lab where I was studying 
you know, pathological food consumption, right? We, we all need to eat food to survive, but often eating can become problematic. People can have too much or too little. I wanted to know what motivates people to change their behavior in, in problematic ways. And that kind of led me down a road of studying substance use disorders. Um, so that, that really, my interest in motivation is what got me into studying drugs and substance use disorders. As, as I mentioned earlier, um, I first started uh, thinking about psychedelics when I, uh, through our, my collaboration with uh, Dr. Gobi when I was finishing my postdoc. And then uh, I think a few months later after I, I started my position here in, in Ottawa, I came across this book, actually. It's called How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science, the main title is How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. And there I, for the first time, uh, learned about the, the, you know, in the, a little bit in-depth history of, of psychedelic research and, uh, um, and some of the, uh, it's a great book. It's, if you want to look it out, it's probably not the only one. There's probably many others out there. But this one I read and it was incredibly eye-opening in terms of what uh, uh, that early research that Tommy mentioned or, or that it's summarized nicely there. It's, uh, it's a book for uh, everybody, but it has, it includes reference. So it's, it's, it's a nice way to, to get uh, a, a deeper understanding of the field. And uh, that really opened my eyes and, and really won me, uh, you know, led me to, to, to be continuously interested in this field and, and start some projects on my own, uh, of my own. And uh, now, why did I became interested in general in, in uh, you know, pharmacotherapy for psychiatric disorders? Well, I, I initially, when I started neuroscience, honest, I, I, I come from a biology background. So my interest, it was more in basic research, you know, like, oh, like, you know, basic question that probably everybody poses, <laughs> how the brain works, uh, uh, which is a very interesting, but also a very general question. Um, and I'm talking about when I was in, you know, first, second year of, of, of my undergrad. And then, uh, so my initial interest was very basic, you know, how, for example, learning and memory, how do we store information in the brain? Over time, uh, uh, when I came to Canada for my PhD, I'm more interested in, in using our, our rat models and mouse models to understand uh, human psychiatric conditions. So uh, over time also, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I went through episodes in my life where I, I certainly needed some, some help. Uh, uh, the depression was something I struggled for a number of years. So, uh, and, but I was also acutely aware of how sort of like, uh, what a messy trial and error procedure is to treat effectively, to, to treat depression effectively. Um, you know, I was lucky I didn't need a, a very long lasting treatment and I responded to SSRIs. But, you know, that's not the case for a number of people. And you don't know who's going to respond and who is uh, uh, until you, you put them under the treatment. And then you see if it works. And if it doesn't work, you have to try, et cetera. So it's a, it's a trial and error, which I hope all of these research will lead to uh, change. Like uh, I, I, I found it really, uh, you know, tragic that uh, patients have to go through that in order to, to you know, uh, find out whether uh, they can improve or not. 
So hopefully these these you know these drugs are are, are obviously there's a lot of enthusiasm and and like anytime there's a new type of drug there's great enthusiasm what what happened scientists we have to remain cautious like it's the same for ketamine it's a great uh treatment but it's not for everybody certainly and we're only beginning to understand who might benefit best uh uh, uh uh, so currently it's only approved for treatment resistant patients. This is patients that didn't respond to first line treatments like SSRI. So, uh, so there is a lot of enthusiasm. The enthusiasm is waning as, as we know more about it. It doesn't mean that it's not effective or anything. It just means that it has limitations as well. And probably for psychedelics, we will find those limitations as well. So we have to be, as scientists, we have to keep uh, a very skeptical mind about it, even if, even though the hype is, is huge at the moment, as Tommy said, and as Milan said too, uh, right now, it's a, it's a very hot topic, uh, but one, um, we have to remain uh, uh, a bit skeptical and, and, and we not you know jump into conclusions until we'll have evidence of, which is what we need to to have as scientists but uh so far the picture is really promising and really interesting so i think uh continuing research in this field will be uh the way to move forward and to really understand what is required for this uh, for these drugs to work and how can we use them uh properly in in different clinical populations if you weren't a researcher studying the effect of drugs in various fields, various environments, if you weren't a researcher, what would you do? I honestly have no idea. <laughs> I've been in this in research for so long that uh, unfortunately I didn't, uh, you know, I, I question myself when things aren't going great. It's like, what would I do if I decided to quit today? And the answer is probably something very general. I, I think I'll be happy delivering things <laughs> in one of these careers because at least I know how to drive. But other than that, I <laughs> unfortunately, I don't have an answer yet. I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> my, my, um, my master's advisor used to say that his backup career was to be a mailman because it was great benefits you get to be outside <laughs> so i thought i always thought that, i agree with that too yeah <laughs> yeah i always thought that was funny but what to seriously answer the question when when it's asked is i always then i just start thinking of things that are like research adjacent i'm like maybe i could be a detective or a reporter you know like so i don't know i think i just like research so much it's hard to see myself doing something different we get that answer a lot of like inspector, detective, you know, something like I have to solve some type of question or problem. Um, so <laughs> starting to see trends with this one here. Yeah, it's funny you say that because that you made me realize that that's what I was trying to think of. I was like, OK, how can I, you know, kind of do experiments in a way that lets me uncover some truth without being a researcher? Um, yeah, so not, not a good answer something that you know has the same qualities as uh, as a scientist i suppose i guess it, then you're all in the you're all in the right field you're all doing the right thing if you can't think of anything else that would occupy your days milan tommy and argel thank you very much for joining us again today this has been a really incredible conversation if you like what you've just heard and you're interested in learning more about our podcast our episodes our mission or maybe you want to join us as a guest Reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, 
or simply email us at brainstorm.podcast.mtl at gmail.com. Until then, we look forward to brainstorming with you soon.